Hello, I'm Alan Fasfeld. This is the fifth episode of this season of the Urban Astronomer podcast. I know you've all been waiting for the promised interview with Dr. Imogen Whittam, and I am happy to share that this is what you're going to get in the next few minutes. Before we do, though, I want to quickly talk about comets, specifically Comet C-2020 F3-Neowise. This comet has had our Northern Hemisphere friends very excited over the past few weeks as it's one of the brightest comets that they've had in a long time. It was even naked eye in some places, and if you're on social media, I'm sure you've seen dozens of truly spectacular images of this comet taken by amateur astrophotographers. Well, the good news for us in the Southern Hemisphere is that it has finally appeared above our Northern Horizon. Unfortunately, while it should have technically been naked eye visible to us as well, it was so low down and so close to the sun that I'm not aware yet of anybody seeing it at all. In the past week or so, it's climbed steadily upwards, but has also faded fast. But the good news is that it should still be bright enough for basic photographic equipment, and it's now high enough to still be findable once twilight has passed. Any camera on a tripod capable of long exposures of around 30 seconds should, if my instincts are right, be able to capture it. But that's not all. A few months back, we had our own comet, which would have been bigger news had it not been overshadowed by 2020 F3. This comet, C-2019 U6 Lemon, only ever got as bright as about magnitude 5.3 or so, and it was far further south. It should have been visible in my western sky just after sunset, but my horizon in that direction is so obscured with trees, I never found it. It's quite a lot fainter, but it is still above the horizon and should also be in reach of basic cameras, if not as easily as 2020 F3. But the real kicker here is that at the moment, they are both in the constellation of Coma Berenices in a straight line from Arcturus. They're separated by about 10 degrees, which means you should be able to fit both comets and Arcturus into the same field of view using a DSLR camera with a 50mm lens. Stick Arcturus in the top right-hand corner of the field, and they should be in there. So that's my project for the weekend, and I encourage anybody listening to also give it a go. Send your pictures to me at podcast at urban-astronomer.com. But first, listen to my interview with Dr. Imogen Whitten. Yeah, so I'm Imogen Whitten. I'm now a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oxford, um, but I've just moved to Oxford having spent five years at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so uh, so you're not originally from South Africa then? Or no, no. I'm, yeah, I'm British, um, but I, I spent five years in Cape Town. I was going to ask, I said, you've picked up the accent fast, but <laughs> the other way around. <laughs> no, other way around. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so then, um, so what brought you to South Africa to study in the first place? Yeah, so I moved to South Africa to take up a, an SKA postdoc um, because of the fact that the Square Kilometre Array is, is being built in mm. South Africa, which it's just such an amazing opportunity um, to, to move to South Africa. And and I loved living in Cape Town. <laughs> I miss it a lot. Yeah, we get that a lot. Uh, people seem to, especially the uh, the SAAO and uh, SARAO, just, uh, I hear over and over again, just, just what a like, friendly and, and, and pleasant bunch they are to work with. Uh, so few yeah, of the usual stresses and what have you. No, that's absolutely true. I, I was based primarily at the University of the Western Cape, but I, I'd spent a few days a week at 
at the SAO and at Surreo as well. So kind of mm. moved moved around the different Cape Town astronomy facilities. <laughs> <laughs> so what uh, what was your background before then? I mean, what 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 got you there? What was your your path? Like, start from the beginning. When did you get interested in astronomy in the first place? So I think I've always been interested in in astronomy and space, kind of one of those natural curiosity things as to, ooh, what, look up the sky and, ooh, what's out there and and that sort of thing. So I've, al- I've always been curious about about the night sky and, and space. And then I, I went to the University of Cambridge to do a physics degree and took a few astronomy courses, which I really enjoyed, and then went on to do a, a PhD in, in astrophysics at the University of Cambridge. All right. And, and then from there you saw the SKA post and came on over. Exactly, exactly. From there I exactly saw the saw the SKA post advertised and it was too good an opportunity to turn down. Okay. So what was the role? I mean, sorry, I'm not actually from an academic background myself. So so how does that work? I mean, what, what's what was expected of you when you arrived? Um, at, do you do you find your own research or are you joining somebody else's program or what's the deal? Yeah, so I guess I was in a slightly unusual situation in that I, so you have to write a research proposal as to the project you want to do. Right. So I, I wrote a research proposal um, saying, oh, I, my PhD had been on radio galaxies. And so I wrote this research proposal saying, I, I really like radio galaxies and I'd like to come to South Africa. And at this point, obviously, Meerkat, this was in 2014, so Meerkat hadn't hadn't been built yet but saying oh this is all going to happen and it would be really great if I could come and use some of these telescopes and and do this research um but I guess yeah my situation was slightly unusual because I was applied to work with Professor Matt Jarvis who's actually based at the University of Oxford but has a, a visiting position at UWC so that meant that I was doing quite a lot of sort of remote collaboration if that makes sense mm-hmm. okay so you're already working with him and then uh all right. And what was your proposal? What were you interested in? Ah, oh, yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, these things evolved. So the initial <laughs> research proposal I wrote when I applied back at the end of 2013, it'd be very interesting to go back and read that and see how much of that I ended up doing and to what extent I ended up doing totally different things. Um, but my so my initial research proposal was to, obviously, as I said, Meerkat hadn't been built yet. So was using a telescope called the Very Large Array, which is in the US. Mm-hmm. And so we New had Mexico, some radio... Hmm? New Mexico, isn't it? In New Mexico, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. The only reason I've heard um, of New Mexico yeah. is because of the VLA. But <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But so we um, had some, some radio surveys that have been done with the VLA, led by, by colleagues in Oxford. And so... I wanted to to use those to study radio galaxies and to combine those with data from other optical and infrared telescopes. And the idea being this would would give us some exciting science and would also help us develop some of the techniques that we would then need to analyze the MeerKat data. So it's right. kind of a double double goal, I suppose, the, the science goal and also getting us ready to to analyze the MeerKat data. Okay, so that's uh, more of a processing side and uh, just myself trying to, to wrap my head around it because I, you know, mm. I was, uh, half the people I speak to have been involved with SK in some way, whether it's from the engineering side or from a from a purely observational side or, or, or what have you. Well, it's such a big 
there are so many people involved. Yeah. All right, then. Um, so I understand your current research interest, then. Uh, you've been looking at radio galaxies. What are those? Yeah, that's a really great question. So they... So maybe if we we start with start with some basics. So all galaxies have got a supermassive black hole at their center, mm-hmm. and most galaxies, like for example our Milky Way, that supermassive black hole is sitting there fairly passively. But in about one in ten galaxies, gas and dust is falling into that central supermassive black hole, and when that happens that's a hugely energetic process and vast quantities of of energy are released and we get these these tangled twisted magnetic fields and they in some cases funnel these charged particles out from the center in these very powerful massive jets and those jets happen to be really bright at radio wavelengths and so we call these galaxies that produce these these really powerful jets of particles radio galaxies. And I think they're really cool because they basically have these sort of giant eruptions going on from their center. They they make some really stunning images of these of these jets. Um, and so they're they're pretty exciting objects to study. These these jets are absolutely giant. They can be several thousand times the size of the galaxy itself. So all of the stars and stuff that you get, they'll be in the center, and then these jets will travel for thousands and thousands of light years beyond the, the galaxy in the center. So are these what we used to call quasars, or is that a subset of radio galaxies? Um, yeah, so so quasars are, are caused by the same, same process. These are all types of what we call active galactic nuclei, um, and some quasars will have these these radio jets, but not all of them. Um, yeah. Astronomers sort of classify things in lots of different ways that that can get a bit complicated, particularly because a lot of the classifications grew up before we actually understood what was going on. The word quasar was initially an optical classification from optical images, right. and then we classified radio galaxies from radio images. And now we understand that some of those are actually the same things. Um, but. Okay. So this is a bit of a left-field question. I just sort of right now. I uh, don't know if you'll know this. I don't. Um, because kind of quasar use, uh, was short for quasi-stellar objects. How do they know yeah. that they weren't stars? Did they just happen to notice that they were in the same location as bright radio sources or, or what? Do you know? So... Partly that, but also if you if you take their optical spectrum, oh. then they don't look like a star. Okay. So, and also, so I don't really know anything about stars at all. I'm very much an extragalactic astronomer, but I'm pretty sure that also all of their colours. So if you compare the, say the the optical observations in different bands or the infrared observations, that they're, they're different for quasars and stars. Okay, so so what is it that you are interested in about? Well, what what that that's what questions are you trying to answer about about radio galaxies? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm, I mean, I'm interested in them in general because I think they're really cool objects, and and there's a lot we don't understand about them. So I'd like to sort of natural human curiosity of find out more about what caused these jets, mm-hmm. why are some of them weird shapes those kinds of questions 
but also we we think that they play a pretty important role in the evolution of galaxies because in in massive galaxies we know that something must be slowing the rate at which they form stars mm-hmm. if we if we make a simulation of the universe and of galaxies we find that all of the massive galaxies form their stars way too fast so something must be slowing down the rate at which we form stars and we think for these massive galaxies, that's radio galaxies. But the processes that cause that are not well understood. We, we don't understand how those mechanisms work. Um, so it's one of the things I'm particularly interested in is, is what we call feedback, how the radio galaxy affects the stars that are forming in the galaxy. And so therefore the effect that has on, on the evolution of the galaxy as a whole. Um, because there's a lot we don't understand. I mean, for example, I mentioned that about one in 10, approximately, depending on the size of galaxy you're talking about, about one in 10 galaxies um, have these these active supermassive black holes. But what we don't know is, does that mean that every galaxy is active for a 10th of its lifetime? Or, or is it just that one in 10 are, are active now? And so, I mean, every galaxy has got a supermassive black hole. Are they all active at some point? What causes some of them to be active and some not? Why do they switch on and switch off? Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of questions. Wow, okay. I don't even know where to go from that. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of questions. I'm, 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 I'm rambling about, oh, I want to know this and I want to know that. <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> so then... Um... we One of the things I've been looking at recently is... The, the the different types of these active galaxies and the way in which matter falls into them. And our kind of current understanding at the moment is that there's two different types of radio galaxies and the matter is falling in 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 a different pro using different processes. Mm-hmm. Some of the work I've done recently has shown that it may actually not be quite as clear cut as that. We think there might actually not be these two distinct classes and that then it may actually be more of a continuous distribution. Um, right. But that's that's kind of early days for that result. And we need to, this is something we definitely need to delve into a, a, a lot deeper. Have you and seen this? That's something that- is, has this come just from just from observing galaxies that don't quite fit into either one or is there some other clue that you've, that you've used? Um, so yeah, this is looking at, at a sample of about a thousand galaxies and looking at, at the rate at which they're accreting matter and their properties. And previous studies using different samples have found quite a clear dichotomy or split between these these two classes. Mm. Um, but we, with our sample, didn't find this this clear dichotomy. And there's several different reasons why we could have been getting different results. One is that our our sample goes much deeper um but that's that's something we definitely need to investigate further Mm. and that's that's where um the the sample we're working on at the moment with with meerkat data will hopefully go a long way to answering this question so why meerkat then is it just because it can look deeper or is there something something else about it that gives you better data yeah, so Meerkat is a really a great question. survey. <laughs> no, no, no it, it, it's a good question. So, I mean, Meerkat's a great survey. 
right? So it means that we can make deep observations in a shorter period of time, which is really great because it means that we can get a really large sample so we can get statistically significant results and we can push much deeper, which means that we can see very distant objects and low-powered closer objects. So we can kind of survey the whole the whole population or across a whole range of different powers, which is, is really important. Um, and because we can make deep observations without using as much telescope time, we can survey a large area, which means two things. It means that we can see the rarer sources. And also, again, as I said, it means that we can, we can get a large sample. Um, the other major advantage that Meerkat has is because of the way that the antennas in the radio telescope are, are laid out, we've got lots of antennas in the core, which means that we're sensitive to really diffuse emission. So it means that we can we can make some really, really great observations of these extended radio jets. Um, and I, I mentioned the, the very large array in, in America before. Um, so we're seeing much more diffuse extended emission than has been possible with the VLA previously. Um, so that that's throwing up some interesting results. I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Meerkat also has quite a wide field of view. So you're able to see... Uh, sort of survey a much larger area of the sky at the same time. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, that, that's exactly right. We can see about a square degree at once. And that that's why it's such a good telescope to do a survey with, because you need fewer, fewer pointings to survey the same area of sky um, as you would if you were using a telescope with a much smaller field of view. Mm. Okay. So I suppose what comes next, um, what's... What are you anticipating uh, finding? That doesn't make sense with what you've already said, does it? Um, what what comes next well, is more, more data, more results. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a really exciting time. So I'm part of one of the the Meerkat large science projects, um, one that's called Mighty, which is one of these convoluted acronyms. Mighty stands for the the Meerkat International Gigahertz Tiered Extragalactic Exploration, um, <laughs> and We've been taking data for about a year now. So we're just at the, the point where we've now got lots of data and we're sort of figuring out how to process it and we're actually producing our first images. And so we're at the point where now actually we can really start doing the science. So this, this is a really exciting time for, for the project and, and hopefully we'll, we'll have some exciting results coming out soon. So is it right to say then that a lot of the work being done on Meerkat is still, I don't want to call it calibration, but learning how to, like characterizing the instruments and learning how to reduce the data and work with it uh, just to make sense out of, out, of, out of what it can do? Yeah, so there's obviously a lot of learning still going on about the best ways to process the data and, and all of that sort of thing. It is um, very, but huge very progress. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but huge progress has been made on that in the last year. So we are now producing some pretty amazing looking images, which are, are, are very much ready for science. You've been doing some outreach work at schools in the Oxford area. I mean, what does that look like? What, what's, how does that work? Yeah, so there's, there, there are a few local primary schools here that, that we go to 
and run some some kind of hands-on physics experiments for them and the idea being that these are these are kind of exciting experiments that they can do they're a little bit more open-ended than what they do in their normal curriculum so it allows them to sort of explore open-ended questions in a bit more detail rather than the more sort of formulaic things that they they might be doing as part of their curriculum and get a bit more of a flavor as to what what science actually involves um i mean for example when i was there last week before the school shut um we were making batteries out of lemons um and playing around with with how many lemons you need to light up a light bulb and and that sort of thing we've also made magnetic slime and <laughs> <laughs> magnetic slime that's what just like iron filings dissolved in slime or dissolved but you know suspended in slime or uh, pull it around but with you, magnets or yes exactly and you can you can experiment with with how, how the how it changes with how many magnetic filings you put in and and that sort of stuff i have a feeling my kids would love to do that <laughs> it's fun <laughs> it's pretty fun you can you can definitely make it educational by by testing or well, learning things about magnetic fields and, and testing things with if you use a stronger magnet or more magnetic filings and yeah i suppose if it's this sort of uh more open-ended less structured then it's teaching them more about uh just the process of 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 figuring things out and scientific thinking and it's more about sort of how the scientific method works about we we have a hypothesis and then we design an experiment so we sort of have a question we want to ask we design an experiment to try and test that or answer that question and then see see what results we get at the end so the these kind of experiments are more about teaching them that sort of basic process of how science works rather than necessarily the the actual content which because i guess in their sort of their normal lessons it's it's more about learning the content that they need yeah i remember those school experiments it was you went through all the motions but you knew at every step exactly what was going to happen and what you were going to write down and if it didn't work like that it was because you'd messed up not because you know there was no no exactly uh, yeah yeah okay well um if people want to get hold of you or find out more about what you do um how can they do that can get in touch with me on twitter my twitter handle is at imogen whitton that's that's probably the best way to to get in touch with me and send me all of your radio galaxy questions or any general astronomy questions i'm always happy to answer well then thank you very much thanks for your time great thank you so that was dr imogen whitton I want to take a moment to thank her and all the other guests who have appeared on the show for taking the time to chat with us. They are really what we're all about. Um, You know, just to show off what we have in this country, the people who come here to study our skies, the people who come from here to study the universe at large. You folks are just, I think it's amazing what you do. And I think it's amazing that South African skies are so valuable. Now, next episode will be another Science Explaining Bits. And the big question is this. How can we be so certain about what the stars, nebulae, galaxies, and distant planets are all made from when no one's ever been there with a test tube to check it out? That's right, we're talking about spectroscopy, but also a few other clever tricks that we have up our sleeves to figure these things out. 
Until then, if you'd like to support the show, please show a friend how to subscribe so that they will never miss an episode. If you want to offer more immediate practical help, go to www.urban-astronomer.com and click Support Urban Astronomer at the top. In there, you can find links to buy me a coffee, make a discreet donation on PayPal, or even pledge a monthly donation via Patreon. Otherwise, though, just feel free to enjoy the show, and if you liked it, leave a review wherever it is that you found the show, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or even just a comment on the urban-astronomer.com website. Anyway, until next time, I hope you have clear skies, I hope you catch those comets, and I hope to meet you again. Cheers. Cheers.